everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, I've got a great news show for you this week. We had a wonderful interview last week with Bruce Schneier. If you have not heard that, you need to go back and listen to it for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, it was my pod centennial. It was, it was episode 100. I can't believe I've been doing this almost two years now. Um, we had a big contest, not only a great interview with Bruce Schneier, we had a big contest last week, and I'm here to say that that contest is being extended by one week. I want to make absolutely sure everyone has a chance to um, a chance to enter the contest, and I know even personally, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I don't always listen to them right away. Uh, so I want to make sure that everybody has a little, little bit extra time. So we're going to extend it by one week, which means, yes, you have to wait one more week to find out if you've won. For those of you who have already entered, I'm sorry to, to drag this out a little bit longer. Uh, but I want to make sure, absolutely sure, that everybody has a chance to uh, to enter. And I'm going to simplify uh, the entry stuff a little bit. I thought it may have been a little complicated. Um, so anyway, we'll get to that in, uh, toward the end of the show. But there's actually a lot of news to cover. A lot of stuff has happened in the last couple of weeks that I want to make sure I talk to you about. And I try to, you know, as always, I try to pick out the stuff that I think is most important, the most salient stuff for the audience. Uh, in particular, you know, things that you could actually do something about or things that actually affect you. There's, you know, there's plenty of stories that actually are, you know, maybe overhyped or, you know, kind of only affect, you know, corporations like big corporations or things like that, that I don't really, that I don't often go into. Uh, the stuff I'd like to cover here is the things that, you know, the everyday person actually needs to know and care about and maybe need to take some action to protect themselves. So um, we're going to talk about the the ongoing browser privacy wars. Um, Google, uh, Google's Chrome and Firefox, you know, kind of go back and forth on claims of being more secure and being more private. Uh, and they're both introducing some new features. And I'll explain why, you know, one of them is good and one of them may, may not be so good for your privacy. We're going to talk about an interesting piece of Mac malware that hopefully hasn't bitten you, uh, that you ha have not seen. But uh, it's really interesting in how they did what they did. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And we're going to talk about, of course, the FaceTime bug that was all over the news that, you know, uh, Apple's FaceTime, which is their video chat application that most people probably use on their phones, but you can use on your Mac as well. Uh, that allows you to do video calls uh, with other people and recently has added the feature of doing group video calls. And that actually is where the bug was found. It allowed, in some cases, people to uh, kind of spy on other people without them um, being able to stop it. So we'll talk about that. And finally, another thing that hit the news that you actually might have also seen, there was uh, yet another massive, massive data breach. Um, and a lot of user emails and credentials spilled online. It's just absolutely huge. Maybe the biggest one to date, which is, which is saying a lot. So we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about that, what that really means to you and how you might be able to protect yourself and find out if you were affected. All right, first up, let's talk a little bit about the ad blocking wars. And this has really been a cat and mouse game. The, you know, the, the web, because no one likes to pay for anything, is basically an ad economy, an advertising-based economy, and most websites make their money off of advertising in one way or another. Uh, sometimes they make it off referrals. You know, if you click certain links, they get a little bit of kickback. Uh, in other cases, they're actually just selling basically billboard space on their websites and having, in, in most cases, third-party advertising companies fill those billboards for them and give them a cut of whatever the advertising revenue is. Uh, that's how today's web economy mostly works. But unfortunately, those ads have gotten, well, first, they're really annoying. A lot of them, because they're trying to get your attention, and it's so hard to get people's attention, there's actually an ad blindness that they talk about because we've gotten so inured to 
all these ads all over the place that in a lot of cases your brain just tunes them out. And that, of course, doesn't do the advertisers any good. They want your attention. So, you know, they they flash, they move around, they pop over, they pop under, they, you know, do all these crazy things to try to, you know, make it so you can't ignore them. And it's just, it's just gotten crazy. So, of course, in response to that, there's been an ad blocking movement, you know, either not not in the browser so much, but certainly in browser extensions like uh, uBlock Origin and AdBlock Plus and some of these other extensions that you can add to your web browser that allows you to block some of these things and make them less obnoxious or remove them altogether. And, of course, the advertisers hate that. And, and so they've gotten clever about detecting when there's an ad blocker in place and then notifying you, hey, I see you're using an ad blocker. Please turn that off because we need those ads to make money. And it's this cat and mouse game that's been going back and forth. Um, Unfortunately, as I've talked about many times in the show, it's not really even just about the annoyance of the ads. It's not even the tracking of the ads, which, of course, these ads, these images are actually tracking you around the web as well. So uh, they know that if you're seeing these ads and if you clicked on an ad, certainly... Uh, they know that. And so that when you go to other websites that are served by the same advertising companies, and by the way, Google is like the biggest advertising company on the web, uh, they know that. And so you start seeing those same ads on other websites too that are completely unrelated to whatever site you were on. But it's even worse than that. It's not just the tracking. It's not just the annoyance. It's actually malware. Uh, it's we've, There's actually a term coined for this now. It's called malvertising. Uh, because these ads, because they're you know such a commodity and they're going through all these third-party, you know, indirect websites that serve these things, it's easy, it's trivial, actually, for bad guys to buy advertising space and fill those, you know, those website billboards, effectively, with malware or links that direct you to websites that then install malware or whatever. And it's, you know, because the websites are really just renting out this space to a third-party advertiser, they they're really not responsible for the for whatever ads come on there. They don't know. They're just saying, hey, fill these with ads and give me a cut. So anyway, uh, there's a legitimate need for ad blockers. And it's not just about, hey, I don't want to be annoyed. It's about I don't want to be tracked. And it's about I don't want to be exposed to potential malware. So I still highly recommend that you use ad blockers whenever possible. And uBlock Origin is the extension that I recommend. But some recent changes to Chrome uh, that are coming in Chrome. They've announced this is coming. Now, it's not set in stone, and they got a lot of blowback on this, so that may change. But Chrome, uh, Google's Chrome browser, which owns like, I don't know, 65% of the world browser market, is based on, I guess, a framework, you call it, called Chromium, which is the, the underlying technology that makes up the Chrome browser. And because it's actually that part of its open source, I believe, There are other browsers that use it as well, like Opera. Uh, If you've ever heard of the Opera web browser, it's based on Chromium. And in fact, Microsoft's new Edge browser, uh, while they tried to make their own browser, has basically thrown in the towel and said, okay, we're going to just base ours off of Chromium as well. So even though you're not using Chrome, you're still using Chromium, which is Google's base web browser technology. And what Google has announced they're going to do, and they said, of course, that they're doing this for user privacy, is they are going to severely limit what browser extensions are able to do in terms of inspecting and blocking web traffic. And what that means is for an you know for a plugin like uBlock Origin, what happens is when you load your web page, that's a whole bunch of code behind the scenes. And behind the scenes, it's actually fetching images and and content from all sorts of other sites. You may have gone to 
you know, Amazon.com or Yahoo.com, but um, behind the scenes, uh, you know, all those ads and all the various elements of that web page are actually being served up by multiple, multiple other sites, dozens in some cases. Uh, and that's all happening behind the scenes that you can't see that. But when you install a plugin like uh, uBlock Origin, it is actually inspecting all those things and it is blocking requests to known advertising sites so that those images don't even get downloaded. And that that's how it does what it does. Well, this new thing that Chrome, uh, that Google has decided to do in its upcoming Chrome browser is to limit what those extensions can do. Now, what they're saying is that this is for your privacy because those extensions can see all the places you're going. And then theoretically speaking, they could be saving that information and sending it to some third party to basically track everything you do, which is ironic because <laughs> that's exactly what Google wants to do. Um, uh, you know, so it really comes down to who do you trust? Do you want to trust, you know, Google or do you want to trust the extension that you explicitly downloaded and installed into your Chrome browser? So Google is basically taking this the stance of, you know, we want to be the, the policeman here. And of course, that in the end really just benefits them, because if if uBlock Origin and, you know, AdBlock Plus and all these other extensions can't do their job, which is to block ads, then ads get through and you know, theoretically Google makes more money. So, you know, I, they have a point, obviously, if you are installing bad extensions by, you know, third parties that are not trustworthy, then yes, they could be abusing the, the, those privileges and doing something with that data. But, you know, should Google be taking that choice away from you? That is the question. And uh, it's going to be a big debate. And uh, there's already, already, like I said, a lot of blowback uh, to Google on this. So they may, they may change this policy, but that's where they want to go. And in fact, Google Chrome has, you know, said, well, we're going to put in our own ad blocking technology because we know customers hate ads, especially annoying ads. And, uh, but it's important to realize that when Google was doing that, they may not be showing the ads, but they weren't blocking the underlying tracking, which of course is the key part of what these ads are doing that Google wants to not stop. So basically, there's our, there are huge conflicts of interest here with Google being 90% of their revenue is based on advertising. And they have a 60 65% or so web browser market share, which is huge, with Google Chrome. And so if they make it so that the most popular web browser on the planet can't actually block ads and they make their money off of ads, you know, that looks fishy. So anyway, take that with, you know, a grain of salt, I suppose. You know, they say they're doing it for your benefit, but, you know, we know how that goes. Now, in stark contrast, and this is why I recommend this browser over Chrome, Firefox has been slowly upping its game and adding more and more user privacy features to Firefox. Um, and they've just come out with Firefox 65. And in Firefox 65, they've kind of combined and simplified some of their tracking protection built into the browser itself, which is great. If you've got the latest Firefox, and you should, because Firefox is actually set to automatically update in the background, which is actually like Chrome too, which is great. So uh, if you've got Firefox 65 and you go into the Firefox preferences, you'll see uh, under privacy, there's a content blocking section. Um, and there's like three modes now. I think one is permissive. The, the, the one I recommend for most people is called strict. Uh, and that blocks most things without breaking much of the internet, because it is possible that if you just... Now, blankets say, I don't want any third-party cookies at all, um, which we've talked about many times on the show, and I don't want to re-explain all these things. But third-party cookies are basically are almost always the tracking cookies. 
uh, first-party cookies. Like if you go to Amazon.com and Amazon drops a cookie, which is a bit of data on your computer, that's a first-party cookie. You go to Amazon, Amazon gives you data, like your login information, so that when you come back, you don't have to log in again. That's a first-party cookie. Third-party cookies are almost always for tracking. So it's almost always safe to block all third-party cookies. Uh, nevertheless, the strict mode isn't as strict as it could be, uh, but it's still probably the best setting for most people. It'll block most tracking uh, without breaking websites. Uh, if you want, there is a custom option, which is what I do personally, and you can go into the custom option for this and block all third-party cookies regardless. Um, that's what I do personally, but that's because I know how to fix it. If for some reason a web page is wonky and won't load or act properly because of that, I know, oh yeah, I probably need to relax my restrictions on this one website. Um, so anyway, that's how you set the setting. Also, for any individual website you're on, uh, notice that up at the address bar where it says, you know, HTTP colon slash slash blah, blah, blah. To the left of that, you know, where the little lock icon usually is, if it's encrypted or whatever, there's a little I, little, little I with a circle around it. If you click that I, that information button, uh, it'll show you information about the website and how secure they think that website is. Uh, and it'll show you what's being blocked, and it'll also show you whatever permissions you've given that website. That's kind of a new thing now where websites, you've probably seen this, websites are popping up these things saying, hey, this website would like to send you notifications, um, you know, which you should almost always say no to, um, unless it's like your, you know, your email client or something where you want to be notified when you get a new email. Uh, most of these times it's just annoying. So I say no to most of those. Uh, but anyway, if you click on little I thing, you can see what your permissions are set. If you've ever allowed that website to do something, that would give you an op op uh, option to you know, dial, dial that back or uh, or give permissions if you had blocked them or that kind of thing. So you can, it's a really nice little uh, addition to the Firefox web browser. And Firefox is by far my uh, recommended web browser. Now on Mac, Safari is not bad. Um, it's fairly, it's secure and, and it's got some privacy features, but they're just so slow to allow you to do whatever you want, like install plugins. It took them forever to allow plugins and, and they're still being very restrictive. So, uh, I like Firefox cause it works on both Mac and PC and you can actually run it on your mobile phone too. So, um, anyway, uh, these are the browser wars and we're seeing, you know, we're seeing how this works between the two big ones where basically Firefox and, and Chrome. And, and, and seeing how they're going back and forth and the, the quite obvious conflict of interest inherent in Google Chrome and how they use, I don't know, euphemisms and, 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 and language to try to make you think that they're helping you. And in reality, in my view, they're really just helping themselves. All right, next up, I want to talk about some Mac malware. We don't talk about Mac malware very often, but it's there. Uh, you know, they're really not that much more secure than windows pcs i don't think uh but they're they're not nearly as popular so when the bad guys write you know viruses and whatever they tend to go for where the where the big market is and that would be windows pcs uh nevertheless um i wanted to talk about a, a recent mac malware campaign because it's it's really interesting i think and fascinating um how they did what they did so i'm going to read a little bit from an article from ars technica which is a great website uh, let me read a little bit from their article about this new Mac malware. Researchers have uncovered a recent malicious advertisement campaign that's notable for its size, scope, and resourcefulness. A two-day blitz triggered as many as 5 million times per day that used highly camouflaged JavaScript stashed in images to install a Trojan on visitors' Macs. The ads were served by a group that security firm Comfiant has dubbed Very Mal 
a name that comes from the veryyieldmalist.com, one of the ad-serving domains the group uses. A run that was active from January 11th to January 13th on about 25 of the top 100 publisher sites triggered the image as many, as many as 5 million times a day in an attempt to bypass increasingly effective measures available to detect malicious ads the images used steganography, the ancient practices, uh, ancient practice of hiding code, messages, and other data inside images or text, to deliver its malicious payload to Mac using visitors. In a blog published Wednesday, Confiant researcher uh, Elia Stein wrote, "As malvertising detection continues to mature, sophisticated attackers are starting to learn that obvious methods of obfuscation are no longer getting the job done. The output of common JavaScript obfuscators is very." is a very particular type of gibberish that can easily be recognized by the naked eye. Techniques like steganography are used for smuggling payloads without relying on hex code, hex encoded strings or bulky lookup tables. Okay, I know that got a little uh, off in the weeds technically. So what is this saying? Basically, JavaScript is the language of, uh, JavaScript and HTML are the languages of the, mo of the modern web. Almost every website you go to now runs this language called JavaScript. Um, you know, all the fancy stuff that you see, well, not all, um, but a lot of the fancy stuff you see on websites is all done through JavaScript. It's code. It's, it's, it's software code that your web browser runs. And in that code, you can do a lot of things. And the bad guys have been using JavaScript to try to trick you with, in various means. Uh, but through the malvertising campaign, this is common where the, the ads that are shown actually also contain JavaScript. And they either try to get you to download something or trick you in uh, clicking on a pop-up message uh, those kind of things. And, you know, in this cat and mouse game of browsers trying to protect you from that, they, you know, a lot of browsers will look for telltale signs of JavaScript trying to hide. But this new technique, it makes it rather difficult. Uh, so what is steganography? Steganography to me is one of the coolest things I've ever read about having to do with uh, secret messaging. Uh, in fact, I had a whole episode that talked about this. If you go back to episode 72, which was last July, July of 2018, uh, you can check out that full episode, and I recommend you do if you find this at all interesting like I do. But in short, it's steganography, if you you know pick apart the, the, the root words there, um, means covered writing, uh, or kind of hi basically hiding in plain sight. And back in the old days, like really, really old days, the way they would do some of these things is, you know, if they wanted to get a secret message across enemy lines, uh, and they weren't in a hurry, uh, they would write it, they would shave a guy's head, write a message on his head and let him grow his hair back. And then he would just waltz across the line. No one would, you know, find any messages on him, but when he gets to where he was going, they would shave his head and read the message. Uh, so obviously it took some time cause the guy had to grow the hair back. Um, uh, another thing they did back in the day uh, in Greece was they had wax tablets and that's how they would use, you know, reuse something if, with writing. They would, they would cover something in wax and they would use a stylus to carve into that wax, you know, what, whatever they were trying to say. And then when they were done, they could just kind of wipe that down and remelt it and then reuse that as a, uh, a writing tablet. So a famous story back in the day when, uh, there was somebody who knew of a secret attack coming, uh, wanted to get word out to the folks that could protect them, took one of these wax tablets that looked plain melted all the wax off, which exposed the wood underneath and carved their secret message in that wood. And then they put the wax back. They melted it back onto the tablet and made it smooth. So it looked like a blank wax tablet. Uh, and when it got where it was going, they just had to melt the wax off and read the message underneath. That's another, another classic case of steganography. So it could be used for all sorts of things. It doesn't have, doesn't have to be malicious. It's just a way of, you know, kind of 
getting a secret message through in something that looks innocuous. So here's how this works today. All the images you see on the web, the pictures on Facebook and wherever, any image you see is, as we all know, it's, it's a digital image. It's all made up of bits and bytes. And generally what happened, and you know, every of those images, it's like a, a rectangle or a square, right? So you've got rows and columns of pixels. You know, every little point that makes up that picture has a, has a, has a brightness and has a color value. And that's all described through data, you know, so, you know, column one, row one is a pixel that's black column row, column one, row two is a pixel that's slightly less black <laughs> or, you know, and starting to get blue. Uh, and, you know, and the, when you add all these things up, it makes an image. And so if you took that image though, and let's say, you know, each of those pixels was represented, it's actually in binary, but it's hard for humans to understand. So let's say it's represented by a thousand possible values. Um, if I took the last lowest 10 values and just ignored them. So the range of values, instead of being from zero to a thousand, it's actually zero to 990. Not, you know, not, you know, I leave those last 10 for something else. In the, you know, if I were looking at something that's a thousand versus something that's 990, you know, they would look close because uh, the, the, the upper values are more important. So, but if I took those last that last digit and use that for something else then I could go through this whole picture and in that last digit store some other, some other values. And that's what these guys do. So you can't really tell the difference in the image, but there's, you took a base image and then you tweaked it uh, by lowering these little bitty values that, that no one, that the human eye wouldn't notice the difference of. But if I can take the difference between those, all of a sudden I get this other code. And that's what these guys did since, uh, they were blocking the explicit mention of certain websites because they knew these websites were um, serving up bad stuff. They hid the value of those websites in these images and pulled them out on the fly in the web page using JavaScript by analyzing that image, going pixel by pixel and pulling out the data and then reconstructing the website that they were going to pull this stuff from. So it was all dynamic. It was not static. It was not something that was downloaded and could be inspected. It was something that was created on the fly by looking at these steganographic images. So really, really clever. And I just, I just wanted to, to bring that out and let you know that this is where we're at today. This is how this is, again, it's a cat and mouse game. It's a, you know, you know, you start protecting against this. So the bad guys have to work, find some way to work around that. And this is just the latest and the clever way that the, the, the bad guys are working around these things. By the way, the way this worked was it sent you to a website that popped up a thing saying, hey, to, to view this, you need to load uh, an updated Adobe Flash Player. And it told you to click on this link and download and install this stuff. And of course, what you were really installing was malware. So, um, you know, whenever the, the takeaway here really for you is whenever you go to a website that says, oh, in order to use this website or in order to view this content or whatever, you need to download or update this software. That is a huge red flag. <laughs> Do not do that ever. All right. One more quick story about uh, Apple, and then we'll get to our main story and our tip of the week. Uh, you probably saw this because it was so easy for news people to talk about. Um, there was a FaceTime bug. And FaceTime, of course, is Apple's video chat technology. So most people use it on their phones, but you could use it on a Mac, too, where, you know, I want to do a video chat with someone. My, my mom and I use this all the time uh, to talk to each other and keep up and keep up to date. And it, it's wonderful. However, recently, Apple uh, introduced a group FaceTime feature, which allowed you to do more than just one-on-one -on -one video chats. You could do multi-person video chats. Uh, great feature. Uh, nice to have. Everybody was clamoring for this. It was a really big deal when it was released. 
Unfortunately, there is a big, big bug in this software, and uh, it was found last week. And it goes like this. Basically, if I were to call you on FaceTime, your phone would ring, and you'd get a special Apple sound uh, of a FaceTime ring, and you have the opportunity to accept or decline. But if you did a the right incantation, as that phone was ringing the other side, if you turned that into a group chat and added yourself back in, so, you know, kind of a group chat with you and someone else and then you again, this confused Apple's FaceTime to the point where for some unknown reason, and of course it's just a software bug, it's just a mistake, it opened up the microphone on the receiving end. So if somebody was calling you on FaceTime and did this to you, before you answered that FaceTime call, they could hear you. Now, of course, it's not completely surreptitious, right? Your phone's ringing, so you're, you're notified that someone's trying to contact you, but what you don't realize is, if, is that if they, if they know how to invoke this software bug in FaceTime, they can actually hear what you're doing. And in fact, uh, there was another scenario where if the if the receiving user did hit the power button or whatever to decline the call, not only did it open the, the microphone, but it opened the video camera as well. So that's not good. Um, in response to this, Apple just basically completely turned off the group FaceTime feature. So that feature can't even be used right now, which is great. That was what they, exactly what they should have done. They disabled the feature, which is luckily something they could do on a global basis. Uh, until they figured out this bug and have issued a software patch so that uh, this doesn't happen again. All right, next up, uh, we're talking about yet another data breach. And this one is could be the biggest one of all time to date. And I say to date because this is just going to keep happening. Um, there was this massive data dump, and it's been there was one uh, on July, uh, January 17th, a couple weeks back, that was dubbed Collection 1. And then just recently, last week, uh, they this same group or whoever was responsible for this dumped what they called Collections 2 through 5. Now, Collection 1 was already huge. It had 1.16 billion combinations of email and passwords, of which about 773 million of those were unique email addresses, uh, and they had 20 and 21 million passwords. Luckily, in that one, there and I think in the second one as well, there were no credit cards, no social security numbers, names, and addresses. So it's not really an identity theft issue, uh, but it's more of a, a website um, being able to crack into websites uh, with your email address and password. Uh, and then just a couple weeks later, they uh, they dropped an even bigger one. Uh, it's just massive, 845 gigabytes worth of stolen data. That's almost a terabyte of stolen data. It had 25 billion total records of which 2.2 billion unique usernames and passwords. So it's even almost twice as big, or even more than twice as big as the first one. Um, just huge amounts of data. It's believed that a lot of this data is actually from previous breaches, in particular uh, Yahoo, LinkedIn, and Dropbox. Uh, I'm not sure, however, if this data has been previously published. So even though that data may have been obtained you know, years ago, two or three, four years ago, uh, it may not have actually been published until now. Uh, there's a guy named Chris Rowland, uh, a cybersecurity researcher, who said this. He said, it's the biggest collection of data, brace, data breaches we've ever seen. The sheer size of the collection also means it could offer a powerful tool for unskilled hackers to simply try previously leaked usernames and passwords on any public internet site in the hopes that people have reused passwords, a technique known as credential stuffing. So credential stuffing is is really the issue here so even if let's say this this breach was yahoo and it happened i don't know what, what was four years ago and yahoo told everybody and so you dutifully went and changed your yahoo password um 
if you use that password anywhere else, uh, the bad guys are now going to take all these passwords they've found along with your email address, which in a lot of cases today, your email address is what's used as your user ID. So now they have your user ID and your password potentially for many other websites. If, if you reused that same password somewhere else. So what does that mean for you? Well, this, I'm going to give you some advice that I've given you all the time. And the reason I give it to you all the time is because this is the, these are the root problems with a lot of our online authentication. And and so the, the re the way we react to this, the way we try to prevent this, the way we try to mitigate damage is the same. So you need to use unique, long, strong passwords for every single website. They can't, don't reuse passwords, even on sites you don't care about, because you never know. But if you, you know, if you absolutely have to make sure that you cover the key sites and that of course would be things like financial sites, any, any website that has your credit card information, any website that might have your social security information, uh, medical websites, and also social media and email accounts. Now I know you might think, ah, who cares if someone gets into my Facebook account? Um, well, first of all, on social media accounts, what they could do if they had access to that is they could try to dupe all of your friends and family, all, everybody that you friended on Facebook, they could now act as you and say, Hey, everybody click this link. This is really cool. And that link would lead to malware. So that's bad. Emails are email addresses actually worse. So you might, you know, think, Oh, you know, do I really care if they read my emails? I've got nothing interesting in my emails. Again, first of all, they could use your email account to email everybody in your contact list and try to get them to do something bad. Um, but worse than that, maybe is how do you recover your passwords on websites, including banks and medical and those places? Usually what happens is they will send an email with a, a link on how to reset your password. So if they've got control of your email account and, and they can get a password reset link sent there before you can read it, they can go and reset your password. And now they have access to all these other sites as well. So again, use a long, strong password on a different password on every website the only way a human can really be expected to do that is with a password manager. So make sure you find a good password manager that will generate these and store these for you so that you don't have to. And it will automatically fill these in whenever you go to these websites. Uh, I personally recommend LastPass. Um, you can also look at 1Password and there are others. Uh, Dashlane is another one. Uh, but I recommend LastPass. But use a password manager. It's the only real way you could possibly ever have really good, long, strong, unique, random passwords for all of these different websites. And of course, use two-factor authentication wherever possible, because that means that they that the bad guys need two things to get into these websites, not just your password. They need something else. And that usually means having your phone or access to your phone. Uh, for two-factor authentication, I recommend using one-time passwords, time-based. Google Authenticator is a popular one. I, I happen to like Authy, A-U-T-H-Y, better, uh, because Authy will actually give you the option of backing these up to uh, a secure cloud storage. So that if you lose your phone or get a new phone or whatever, you still have access to those codes. Because if you don't, then all of a sudden you've lost access to those websites. So Authy is what I recommend. Now, the real big tip of the week, however, um, beyond the, the standard boilerplate that I just went through, is to use a site called Have I Been Pwned? And that is pwned spelled P-W-N-E-D. And that's a hacker term for means you've been owned or hacked uh, or compromised. So, uh, have I been pwned? It's spelled out just like that. Eight, you know, have I been P W N E D.com. Have I been pwned.com. And this guy, bless his heart has, has started this website, uh, that where he goes and he collects all of this breach data so that you can go to this website. And if you enter your email address, he will tell you exactly whether or not 
your email address as shown up in all of these data collections. Uh, now, as of today, as of uh, the recording of the show, uh, he has not incorporated all the information from collections two through five yet. It's huge, so give him some time. Uh, he has already incorporated the stuff from collection one. So uh, you're going to you already go check that. And of course, it checks not just co- these collections, but many other past data breaches. Um, he goes through the trouble of going to the same place the bad guys would go to find this data and download this data so that you can go and find out what the bad guys know. So uh, that's step one. You can enter your email address and it will tell you if your email address is among these other ones that have been breached and it'll even tell you and which breach that it was part of. But there's even one more tool that's even cooler um, and it's a password checker. Now this might sound kind of shady. You might think, oh my gosh, am I really going to give this guy my password? Well, yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, the website doesn't know what website you know, what password that website is for. You're just entering a password, a naked password. You're not telling it your user ID. You're not telling it what account that's for. You're just saying, hey, have you seen this password before? Um, and it will tell you if it's seen your password before. And those in particular, you're going to want to go and change right away if you haven't already. All right, so that's it. That's my tip of the week. Again, go to haveibeenpwned.com, P-W-N-E-D, um, haveibeenpwned.com, and you can check uh, at any point, not just now, but now would be a good time given these uh, two massive data collections that were dropped uh, to see if your information has been part of these data breaches. And again, the, the newer collections, two through five, are not in his list yet, so you might want to check back later. Uh, it says right on the front page whether those collections are um, what the most recent collections that have been added. So look for that, uh, hopefully in the near future. <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap up our show. Thanks for listening. I've got a couple things I want to add um, before we go. And, of course, one of those is the contest. The Pod Centennial Contest for my 100th episode has been extended. Uh, You've got one more week to enter, and you really want to do it. There's some great stuff there. Uh, Five lucky winners will all get copies, signed copies of my book. They will also all get signed copies of Bruce Schneier's latest book, Click Here to Kill Everybody. That's all top, all five winners will get those, guaranteed. The top winner will also get some fun stuff from DuckDuckGo, a free t-shirt and some stickers. And each winner will get to select from, in order, um, that's how the grand prize winner will be the grand prize winner. He gets a t-shirt and then he gets first choice. And then the second winner gets second choice on on down. And there's a selection of great cybersecurity books from A-Press and, and uh, bundles to select from. And then there's a hand-picked set of books from me, uh, books that I that I like and recommend all the time. And you'll get to choose from one from each bundle. And that's it. <laughs> great stuff. It's worth, it's worth actually quite a bit of money. It's really good stuff. So go back and listen to the Pod Centennial episode if you didn't, uh, because you'll need the passphrase. Probably not too hard to figure out if you just want to guess, but <laughs> if you go back and listen to my pod centennial, uh, you'll get the passphrase that you need to enter the contest. Now, one of the one of the reasons I extended it is because I'm sure it's kind of difficult for some people to remember how to how to enter. You're probably driving in your car, you're running down the road, and I'm telling you to do something that you need to write down. So that's gonna be hard. So hopefully you'll, you know, if you are doing that, you'll be able to go back and just listen to the last couple of minutes of the show to get that information again. And there's more than one way to do it. So first of all, you can go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, my main website. Uh, you'll see my Pod Centennial blog entry. It's in you know, a second or third entry on the main page. Uh, it's kind of hard to miss. Click that, and it'll give you all the details, including the link on how to enter. Uh, you can also go to a shortened bit.ly link to go to the entry form. And I've got two of them now, one that's a little easier to spell and remember. So the first one I gave you last week was called um, 
bit.ly slash podcentennial. So it's bit.ly. That's the website, bit.ly, bit.ly. And go to bit.ly slash podcentennial. Now that might be hard to spell. So I came up with another one that both work. The second one is just firewalls100. So if you go to bit.ly slash firewalls100, all lowercase, uh, and 100, of course, is the, the number, 100. Uh, go to firewalls100, that will get you to the same entry form as well. Uh, you could also go to the podcast site. Uh, if you go to the Firewalls podcast site and go to this episode or the previous episode, you'll find links there as well. So there's all sorts of ways to find these links. Hopefully you will find them. You can also go to my Twitter link. If you go to at Firewall Dragons, that's my Twitter handle. If you go at Firewall Dragons, uh, you'll find my Twitter feed. And, if, and it's been all over my Twitter feed, so you'll find information there as well. Hopefully one of those will get you there and you can enter the contest. you got one week left to, to, to register for these great prizes. And I will announce the winners next week. There will be no more extensions, I promise. Next Monday is when I will announce the winners, and then I will start emailing you uh, those winners to get their shipping information. One more thing I will mention that I haven't mentioned in a long time, but I want to put out one more call. Uh, if you'd like to support all the things that I do, uh, this does take time and money, believe me. Um, but I do it because I think it's important. Nevertheless, uh, it's always nice to have some help. This, the, um, if you'd like to help me out, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You'll find all the information there and how you can help out. I appreciate every little bit. So thanks, everyone, again for listening. It was another great show, and uh, hopefully I've got an interview show next week. If not, I'm sure there'll be plenty of news. So tune in next week for that. Subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And stay safe out there. And as always, everybody, don't get caught with your garbage down. <laughs>